Welcome to episode 37 of Battle Rhythm, the Canadian podcast that tells you what you need to know on security and defense. I'm Stephanie Von Ladke, and my co-host, Steve Seidman, will join me shortly. In today's episode, we talk about the U.S. election, Remembrance Day, and the risk of civil war in Ethiopia. In our Ask an Expert segment, Dr. Lynn Goliker and Dr. Carmen Poulain from the PSEC Research Group answer another question about the LGBT purge campaign in the Canadian military. Our feature interview is with Brigadier General Lise Bourgon, currently a Canadian visiting defense fellow at the Queen's Centre for International and Defense Policy. At the very end of the episode, you'll find Steve's R&R segment. Thank you for listening. Stephanie, how are you doing this week? I'm doing great. It was a big weekend. American democracy held up, and that's a huge relief. You must be relieved as well. I would be if the Republicans were letting this natural process play out as it should. <laughs> I mean, the, the news is full of stories of various actors trying to deny the outcome. And so this is one of the things that we're going to have to watch play out over the next few weeks. But Instead, we have one of our favorite games being played, which is who's going to be in Biden's cabinet? Have you been following the this speculation game? I've not been following the speculation game. I assume it's on Twitter, but I've been following the firing of Esper. I mean, <laughs> one could say he was already a dead man walking, uh, but you know, it's funny to to see that this week the decision was made, and that was it was so urgent that it needed to be done between the election and inauguration day. Yeah, we had heard rumors that Trump was going to fire him, uh, Haspel, the Gina Haspel, the head of the CIA. And I think the third one was Christopher Ray, who was, runs the FBI. And for the question of Esper, the Secretary of Defense plays a pivotal role in the chain of command between the president and the commanders in the field. And so there are questions quickly raised about who is filling that gap. And Trump appointed Chris Miller, who was actually not next in line. There is a deputy secretary of defense that should be the person filling this gap. That's the way the law works, but that hasn't stopped Trump. And so he appointed a guy who was the commander, uh, was the running the National Counterterrorism Center. And one of the problems that I have with this is that Chris Miller was in the military seven years ago. And the secretary of defense is supposed to be someone who was not in the military the past seven years. And if you want somebody like that, you have to get Congress to pass a waiver. And I think we've learned over the past four years that having generals and other retired military officers run the, sec the defense department is a mistake. In fact, uh, this gets us to the, the favorite game, which is everybody's starting to pose names for, for Biden's cabinet. I have just a few rules. Rule number one, no generals, no retired generals or admirals. Uh, we need to have civilian control of the military again. And we've also learned that ex just because you've led a military bureaucracy doesn't mean that you're actually a good politician. So I, I don't really want to see any former generals in Biden's cabinet. The second rule, I think, is if you've already had a history of messing with intelligence in bad ways, being loose with your classified documents and being uh, tried for such uh, things, being indicted for them, 
then you should not also be in the cabinet, which is basically a subtweet of Petraeus. I don't want to see David Petraeus anywhere in this cabinet. And there's a New York Times story that came out today that was goes going through the names. Uh, you'll also see on Twitter and elsewhere names being bandied about. A lot of this, people themselves are trying to make themselves relevant by putting their names in the hat. But I think the New York Times story is fairly safe by suggesting that the Biden team will be lots of folks who were in the Obama administration. And people may think, well, this is the blob. This is all the old people with limited imaginations. And yeah, that's probably true. But sure as hell would like to have experienced people back in the White House and in the executive branch. So there isn't a, a game, an actual game then on Twitter. This is Well, I, there probably are people who have uh, uh, drinking games or, or bets that, <laughs> that have wagered. We still have our, our outstanding who's going to be the next CDS bet that's still Jeez, sitting yeah. around. <laughs> Uh, so I'm sure there are people who've done that. I haven't actually seen any websites dedicated to people playing the game. Again, I think mm -hmm. it, it's probably not going to be as interesting as it often is, because I think a lot of this is going to be people who are well-known. Like, uh, I think the odds-on favorite for the next Secretary of Defense is Michelle Flournoy. She uh, was Obama's Assistant Secretary of Defense, and she has been widely touted as being uh, SecDef material, and she has connections to Biden. So that should not be a surprise. Susan Rice has been talked about as being the Secretary of Defense, uh, Secretary of State. That will be a little more interesting, both because Susan Rice has no friends amongst the Republicans in the Senate, and if this, and the Republicans keep control of the Senate, they may deny her confirmation. They may not even let her get through the confirmation process. They might treat her like Garland, Merrick Garland, the, the man that uh, Obama nominated to the Supreme Court. But also Susan Rice would face a lot of fire from the left because she's seen as being too interventionist. So one of the key things in the next month or two is to watch the progressives of the Democratic Party and how they feel about the various choices Biden makes uh, because they have strong opinions on foreign policy and as well as an economic policy. And a lot of the names being bandied about are ones that the progressives are not big fans of. Another principle I think that we'll uh, see as important is diversity. So not to uh, copy Justin Trudeau's line from 2015, but I think we can expect uh, some diversity in, in this cabinet. Of course, uh, you know, uh, we have Kamala Harris uh, breaking new, new ground and hitting a very important milestone as the first uh, female vice president and first African-American and South Asian vice president. Uh, but we, I think, can expect that to be an important selection criteria when putting this cabinet together. There were certainly a number of women who were named in, in these various lists. There will certainly be more people of color in this administration than in the previous one. That's not a hard, no. not a hard <laughs> bar to jump over. So I, that definitely be with diversity. I think he Biden really set the tone for this administration with his speech on Saturday night when he when he when he was talking about all Americans. He included a couple of groups that are often aren't referred to. You know, you'll often hear men and women. You'll hear people of various uh, ethnic backgrounds. But he also referred to disabled Americans, Americans with disabilities, and he referred to transgender Americans. And I think that's probably the first time uh, that transgender people have been mentioned in such a speech like that. Uh, and so I, I fully expect Biden's administration to have a more of a mix of, of people from all kinds of backgrounds than any than previous administrations. And if he falls short of that, it'll be very obvious and it'll get a lot of heat from that very quickly. His new task force for COVID was striking in that it didn't have anybody who does mental health. And so I think he's already gotten pushback on that, although it was otherwise 
a team full of doctors. And everybody was like, wait, mm. no relatives of the president? <laughs> There's something missing here. So I don't think you're gonna see Hunter Biden in any jobs anytime soon, for instance. Mm -mm. No. And the other huge sigh of relief is that there was no civil unrest or violence after the election was called on Saturday. You could see people celebrating in the street, dancing, singing, drinking champagne even, but Trump supporters were also out and about. And in a context where, as you said, the president refuses to concede the election, I'm just happy no clashes erupted on Saturday night. Yeah, I'm glad about Saturday night. I'm not sure that this is over yet. I think I think we might see more violence once Trump either concedes or starts to, you know, I, I just noted on Twitter that the probably maybe the earliest sign that he does concede is when he starts pardoning his relatives. So if and when Trump does start to concede, that might be moments where you might see violence or, again, protests in the days and weeks ahead as Trump continues to Trump along. I mean, he's not stopping being president for the next two months. He's, as we said, he's firing people. He's also making other decisions that are going to attract energy. And so we'll see how that plays out. At least on the weekend, people could rejoice and celebrate democracy. Even church bells and fireworks were heard across Europe, a fact that uh, was not lost on Saturday Night Live's Weekend Update co-hosts. Did you stay up late enough to catch the episode? I did catch the episode. Speaking of David Chappelle? Uh, no, the, the Weekend Update part with oh. Colin Jost and Michael Che. Oh, yes. Michael Che, yeah. He was fully uh, inebriated as he came <laughs> part of his... <laughs> Of the update, yes. I think that expectations are really high internationally with this Biden victory, but I think Joe Biden's attention will be at home first and foremost. In his victory speech, he emphasized that America needs to heal, and he's trying to convey a message of unity, reaching yeah. out to Americans who didn't vote for him. But I'm pretty sure Trump intends on making that a more difficult job than it should be between now and the inauguration. And while the whole world seems to be celebrating Biden's win, or at least Trump's loss, the United States internal division might actually put very real constraints on what Biden can do internationally. But I still think we can expect a number of fairly positive things immediately. Pretty sure that you know, the U.S. will benefit from a fairly dramatic shift in international public opinion. I mean, it's no surprise that America's favorability ratings in the world are at a, an all-time low, but I'm fairly optimistic Biden's very presence in the White House will help change that quickly. But and for for the rest, you know, in terms of tackling a very ambitious international agenda, a lot of the attention will be at home. And, and that will be, I think, a huge distraction to what Biden can accomplish on the international stage. Well, I do think there's an offsetting dynamic, which is that Biden may not be able to get much through the Senate if if they can't get back the Senate. And what any president does when they face a deadlock Congress is they focus on foreign policy where they have more latitude. Mm -hmm. So you might see Biden actually try to get some more successes internationally because that that's those are the things that he doesn't need Congress for. Uh, he can get the United States back in the WHO and back in the Paris Accords, and he can try to reinstate the Iran nuclear deal, which is going to be the toughest of all these kinds of things. Moving on, even without the United States fixing its own house, uh, we don't know what's going to happen right now with the United States, but we now have a new civil war in Ethiopia. This has been a, a simmering conflict that has broken out, and it's likely to create a lot of uncertainty and unnecessary violence in the region. Have you been following this? Yeah, I have. Uh, and of course, there are limits on what we can 
No, there's been a bit of a communications blackout over the past few days. But Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed, who won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2019 for his part in ending the war with uh, Eritrea in 2018, is now facing the prospects of civil war in his own country. There's a feud between the federal government and the Tigray region in northern Ethiopia, and it's a bit hard to summarize this quickly, but national elections in Ethiopia have been postponed because of the pandemic and Tigray went ahead with its own election, which was seen as an act of defiance. And now the federal government and the Tigray government do not recognize the other as legitimate. Abi cut funding to the region and the Tigray People's Liberation Front or TPLF, if you've uh, been reading the, the articles, called this an act of war, and is accused of having attacked federal military installations, which then sparked military clashes. So tell precisely what's going on, but this is the gist of what's been described over the past few days in, in the news. Of course, I think for a lot of people interested in international politics, you worry about the regional implications. Mm -hmm. This is not a stable region. Uh, the African Union and the UN have uh, both issued statements uh, recognizing that the implications of this conflict are huge. And you see neighboring countries are sealing their borders. You can also look to Somalia. Ethiopia has troops there. So those troops may have to be withdrawn if uh, Ethiopia is dealing with, with a civil war. And of course, peace with Eritrea could be compromised as well, since it's uh, fairly new. So what, what's your take on, on the event of the past few days? My, my first reaction is that, you know, secession doesn't solve conflict. Your, the war with Eritrea was, you know, trying to fix or deal with the consequences of Eritrea seceding from Ethiopia. And when it seceded from Ethiopia, that was part of a larger part of different pieces of Ethiopia trying to secede. So the Tigrays had been secessionist in the past. And I guess this is reactivating their own secessionism. Complicates... Uh, the efforts to try to create, keep a unified Ethiopia, you know, now minus Eritrea. And it seems like both sides are overreacting. I conferred with one of my, my friends who's an Africanist and it's nobody on either side of this is really handling this well. It's not like there's a good guys and bad guys. It's, it's just, it's just a mess and it's avoidable, but both sides are very stubborn about what's about the stakes, about pushing forward with their preferred course of action. And so that's why they're at loggerheads. They're, there, there doesn't seem to be a middle or a place to negotiate or, uh, or stuff to wit to agree upon. It, it seems like they, are, they, they are just now at a, it's almost a zero sum game, which it doesn't have to be. That those things are constructed, so there could be ways out of this, but it's not clear who's going to be trying to foster that. Uh, you know, you mentioned the African Union, you mentioned the UN. They can play a role in this, but they've got to have willing ears, uh, interested recipients of, of that uh, advice. So we'll see how it goes. And we're airing our podcast on Remembrance Day. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. It's going to be a strange Remembrance Day uh, because we can't do the usual things. A lot of the events are canceled or have been moved online. I'm curious for you, now that you've been the honorary lieutenant colonel for the Princess of, of Wales' own regiment, what are you guys doing for Remembrance Day? Yeah, so uh, we did something that was, uh, of course, respectful of, of the guidelines. As you know, Remembrance Day is celebrated in a big way in Kingston. There are many military families and veterans in this town. So on November the 11th, you typically see people out in the street with large crowds gathering late morning at the Cross of Sacrifice to honor Canadian service members past and present. And that's usually where members of the Princess of Wales' own regiment gather 
the last thing that anyone wants is for this commemoration to be transformed into a super spreader event. But the spirit of remembrance is still around. Uh, I see people wearing their poppies and the city has organized a virtual ceremony so that we can still share the day. And in the Canadian Armed Forces, special guidelines were communicated with severely restricted attendance at ceremonies. So what you see is you know, gatherings essentially filmed for virtual consumption. And this is what we did with the Princess of Wales Own Regiment too. We filmed our own ceremony in the armory. It was physically distant. We were wearing black masks and everything was filmed so that it can be shared on Facebook for Remembrance Day. And I think that the video will also be part of that, of the, the city of Kingston's virtual Remembrance Day ceremony. So we made it work. Mm -hmm. We only had a few people represented in the armory. Mm -hmm. uh, we made sure we were using, you know, the entire space on, so that uh, we, we weren't crowding. Uh, and we still uh, laid down the, the wreaths at the foot of the Vimy Cross. And we had Padre and, and members of, of the unit participate, but it was very mm -hmm. limited attendance. Well, that's too bad. But of course, the people who are most at risk of this disease are, are the older folks. So the, the veterans usually show up for these events are the ones who are most at risk. So it's good that you guys were careful about it. I think what I'll do tomorrow is I'll just go through the pictures I have of the various places I visited over the past 10 years. The, the advantage of doing a couple books on European countries and Australia is that I've been to a lot of war museums and I've been a lot to, to a lot of cemeteries over the past few years. So I'll, I'll look at those pictures and I'll post some of those of, you know, I, I, uh, not this past summer, but the previous summer, I went to Omaha beach for the first time. And so I have a lot of blood pictures of the cemetery that overlooks Omaha beach. It's an incredibly moving place. Mm -hmm. And in previous trips, I, when I was doing the research of the NATO book, I drove along the route that more or less that the soldiers took to get to the bridge that was too far on uh, Operation Market Garden. And so all along the ways there are memorials. And then in, after I did the research in Netherlands, I on the weekend I was in Bastogne. So I have pictures of, of the memorials around the Battle of the Bulge. So I'll, I'll look at those. I also did a quick trip to Vimy. So I've got pictures of, of Vimy. So I'll, I'll, I'll look at those and I'll reflect upon those, but yeah, it's not the same. It, you know, it's a, one of the things I'll always, I always remark upon is that as an American living in Canada, uh, that the Canadians and the other Commonwealth countries do a much better job of sort of memorializing World War One and, and that experience. I think uh, Veterans Day in the United States has some weight, but it doesn't quite have the same heft and history that Remembrance Day does. You know, people around the United States aren't wearing poppies uh, tomorrow, and they're not thinking as much about the past. They're thinking about the veterans, but they're not thinking as much about the long past uh, that, that you see in Canada that I saw when I was in Scotland. And we have a military guest as well for the feature interview. We are featuring Brigadier General Lise Bourgogne, and she is the visiting defense fellow at the Queen's Center for International and Defense Policy, and also the Women, Peace, and Security Champion in the Canadian Armed Forces. Yes, and she was a, a participant in your uh, workshop last week, so it'll be good to hear her speak more at length. She had some interesting things to say last week, and I got to chat with her during, in the Zoom chat. I'm looking forward to hearing her interview. Again, like the other women uh, in the CAF that we've talked to, dynamic, interesting, engaging, and so uh, she's definitely worth listening to. But before that, we have a continued Ask the Expert segment. 
we had Carmen uh, Poulin and Lynn Golacur uh, last time talk about uh, the purge, the how the CAF pushed out soldiers who were or and sailors and aviators who were lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender. Uh, so this time they were asked about what about the partners and what happens to the partners of these people. I should note that they are involved in a subsequent study, a sequel to their study. So they're seeking LGBTQAI2S plus soldiers and or partners of them to participate in a research study. So if we have listeners who are in that community or know people in the community, these two researchers are trying to understand the anti-homosexuality policy and the subsequent experience of gay and lesbian soldiers who serve openly in the, in the CAF these days. What is your experience now? Uh, would you care to share your stories? So we can we will provide the poster, which has contact information in the show notes for uh, this this week's episode. And uh, we'll conclude, of course, with my R&R segment. I hope you recover from your allergies uh, quickly <laughs> and good luck in the next couple of weeks. Uh, I guess we'll continue to watch what's going on in the United States with confusion <laughs> as they try to get their house in order. Good luck with keeping your house in order with your rambunctious sons. <laughs> and I'll keep on baking. Sounds good, Steve. Talk to you soon. Take care. Take care. My name's Lynn Golliker. I'm an associate professor in sociology at Laurentian University in Ontario. And I have 16 years um, past service time. I'm also a purge veteran. I lived through a part of the LGBT purge campaign that the military, the civil service, and the RCMP conducted for, for many years. I'm Carmen Poulin, an associate dean in the Faculty of Arts at the University of New Brunswick, and my discipline is psychology. I've been working in collaboration with Dr. Lynn Golliker for almost 30 years now in terms of various research projects on marginality. It's interesting to talk about the partners of LGBT soldiers, and especially during the purge, but I think in general it's an interesting topic too, especially that it gets forgotten and it still gets forgotten today. People think about gays and lesbians in the military now being able to serve openly. The reality is that the partners still to this day get forgotten. And we know from research, we know from practice that when a soldier becomes an active member of the force, they have to go and be deployed. They have to, again, be involved in this total institution. And in the process, that involves their family because they have, for instance, they can be called to leave tomorrow morning to a mission, called to move to a different posting. So there's a lot of aspects of how the military goes about its business that affects directly and indirectly, but directly the family, the partners, the children, etc. In the case of LGBT soldiers, for many years, they couldn't be recognized. And during the purge, they were absolutely not recognized and they had no support. So we wrote an article at some point and the analogy that one of the partner had given me, which 
I thought was so amazing to describe it is she said, the military is the wife and I'm the mistress. And that really summed it up by saying the mistress, what she was illustrating was that her existence was completely and had to be completely invisible. So she she couldn't exist. So let's pitch this in a typical situation. There is a move, there's a posting of the military member. So the partner has to uplift her life or his life for that matter and go somewhere else. But without all of the typical support that's granted at that time that was granted to married couple, even though these couples could have been together for numerous years. And so none of this recognition can be acknowledged. On a daily basis, not even when they are posting, the experience of the partners would be such that they couldn't talk about being partnered with a military member because that puts into jeopardy the military member's career. And the military member would get to work and you know, how things are around the coffee machine on a Monday morning when when we're not in the middle of a pandemic, we would ask each other, what do you do over the weekend? And all this existence and affirmation of living with someone, with a partner, all of that had to be kept silent and invisible. So the lack of recognition, the lack of support at work, if the partner's mother, father uh, would decease, there is not possibility to accompany them to be there for their partner in the way that a recognized partner would be or a, a, a wife or a husband would be. And so the life of the partner was made during the purge invisible and non-existent to such an extreme And they didn't have the recognition of the military like the soldier in the military would have, but they had to gain some kind of recognition through their own activity, which had to be concealed by and large. For instance, how, if you're not in the military, do you decide from one day to the next to go and move to Cold Lake, Alberta? I certainly wouldn't do that. Why would we? It's a military place. If you're not attached officially to the military in terms of your position, it's very unlikely to get a job there. So in addition, for the partner who is closeted, how do you explain to your family, I would love to move tomorrow morning to Bagotville, Quebec, in northern Quebec, you know, without real good reason in terms of a career move. There was a lot of difficulties that partners of LGBT faced on a day-to-day basis. The other sad part is that when we think about the family um, service centers that are around the bases to assist family with various issues and that those services offer uh, counseling and childcare and whatever else, those people didn't have access to it. After 1992, after the famous case of Michelle Douglas, whose case it was as well as as some out-of-court settlement that changed or made illegal the um, CFAO 19-20. Even after, several years later, as late as 2000, actually, it wasn't safe. It was really dangerous. And so even though there's been some efforts now to make that a different 
feeling. I think the importance of the lack of visibility is so huge. And during the purge, the practice of invisibility and of uh, marginality was so internalized by these people that the psychological scar from that period would still be very real if you talk to anyone who experienced that. Partners of um, LGBT soldiers, and I'll sort of preface it around that nebulous time of the purge, was different. And as we have mentioned, that women knew other women, and it was primarily women in the military, so this network. So women were forming and making relationships with each other, becoming involved in a personal romantic relationships. Men weren't. The men were basically going, going off the base, leaving the base. It was not involved with the military. It was civilian men where they would have their relationships. And in the interviews, they were typically shorter. Whereas the women, they were meeting other military women and forming romantic relationships, albeit very well hidden. So in the military, we move a lot. So you get two women. This happens to heterosexual couples as well, by the way. Then you get posted and you get posted. Maybe one gets posted and the other one stay, doesn't get a posting or they both get posted in opposite directions. Pre-1992, you couldn't say anything because it was illegal to be in the military. You'd lose your job. You'd get investigated. So women then who are in a romantic relationship with another military woman, their relationship became very precarious. It could be destroyed just simply by, I have a posting kind of idea. And then there had to be a choice. And then some of them would leave the military to follow their partner, of course. So that's where you would get some of the partners or the romantic relationships. And they'd have to all do this on the side. Nobody could know about this. And it costs, like the military, pays for people to move when they get postings. But if you're not a recognized official partner, then you couldn't get recognized and you couldn't get any benefits from that. So in 1992, though, that changed. The policy changed. The military at that point in time was driven to change, had to change, human rights case. And they then accepted anybody of any sexual orientation could be a soldier. But in terms of partners, that never moved or changed until about 1997. And that's because it changed in the civil society first. And then it was recognized that, well, now these LGBTQ soldiers could have partners and partners could have some benefits and they could move with their partners. So that sort of was official, became more official in 1997. But in our data, when we were talking to people, there wasn't a big rush to go and tell anybody that you had a a partner, a lesbian or a gay partnership, a romantic relationship, and that you're involved with somebody, i.e. a same-sex relationship, because that became an official outing to the institution. So from our research, we didn't see people to be coming out officially to the institution for a number of years, even following that 1997 change, because of the historical discrimination that had been there in the past. You don't forget that. Our work that we did started in, in 97 and went on for 13 years, actually, this longitudinal work played a role in the ability in encouraging the government to apologize for the discrimination that had been taking place in 
GRC as well as in the military. She referred to an article that we published in 2009 based on the, the stories of 146 LGBT soldiers and their partners. And out of that, those recommendations that we made was there has to be an apology. There has to be compensation. These people have to be able to go back and purge their records because they were dishonorably discharged, many of them. And some of them didn't even know that homosexuality and that was on their personal records. So that was part of it, compensation. And also to be around the table to bring about change in the Canadian military was to include the LGBT perspectives. Today, our featured interview is with Brigadier General Lise Bourgon, who is the Canadian Visiting Defence Fellow at Queen's Centre for International and Defence Policy. Before that, General Bourgon was Chief of Operations at the Canada Joint Operational Command and Director General Operations at the Strategic Joint Staff. General Bourgon, first of all, it's wonderful to have you as a guest on the podcast. Thank you for setting aside some time to do this. I'm very grateful. We now have the opportunity to work directly together at Queen's, but it's been a bit different, obviously because of COVID. So let me first ask, uh, how has your battle rhythm changed from CJOC to being a CIDP Visiting Defense Fellow at Queen's, but really mostly virtually? Well, uh, quite a bit to say, uh, actually. Uh, going from working 12 hours plus every day, weekends often included, being responsible for all Canadian domestic and international operations, so about 25 missions throughout the world, 2,000 plus deployed CAF personnel to a move to an academic life. So really stuck in my basement because of COVID, you know, attending three courses. So yes, a bit of change here, but uh, surprisingly, it's, it's still quite busy, just different busy. And I think I'm liking it a lot. And you've even gotten to know Kingston a little bit more and you've taken a few dips in the lake and training for a triathlon and everything like that. So has your battle rhythm changed in that respect too? Oh my God. Yes. So I have the chance to go and do something every day, physical fitness. So I'm going to go for a run after this podcast, but yeah, a long run, a long bike ride, and hopefully probably another two or three weeks to be able to swim in the lake because I, I don't intend on breaking the ice to go for a swim. So <laughs> hopefully the pools are going to open soon and I can replace my workout uh, inside. That's good. Let me ask you about your previous role before we get into what you're doing research on at, at Queen's. But uh, your previous role was very focused on operations. Before that, you were also a Joint Task Force Commander for Op Impact. So I'd like to get a sense for where you think that the Canadian Armed Forces is having the most impact across all of the operations it is currently committed to. Well, it's a, it's a difficult question as the impacts are quite different on every operation. Like it ranges from strategic effects as simply being there on the ground, part of a coalition, to more tactical difference at the troop level, like which uh, ends on training. So when we look at our uh, EFP battle group in Latvia, clearly it has a deterrence effect and sends a clear NATO unity message. Even although they are doing a lot of training at the tactical level, the message there is more strategic. From op unifier mission in uh, Ukraine, which is transforming the structure and the training of the Ukrainian armed forces at the same time as providing hands-on training. 
However, I think that it's on the domestic front that the Canadian Armed Forces are having the biggest impact. Being there for Canadians in time of needs is really essential. And it's what we, the Canadian Armed Forces members, we value the most. I mean, we saw it last spring and throughout the summer and the LCTF in Ontario and the CHSLD in Quebec. The professionalism of our soldiers working hands in hands with the provincial medical organization to improve the condition on the ground was exceptional. I mean, the, the smiles and the dedication of our soldiers that you saw on TV was superb. So, and the same thing goes for hurricane or flood relief when it's time to do something for Canadian. So I think that making a real difference here in Canada, it, it's really what matters the most. That's interesting that you should say that because I was also wondering about the impact of COVID for operations abroad. Now, of course, COVID has had a huge impact on the Canadian Armed Forces because the CAF was called upon to respond domestically. But we're recording this podcast in the midst of the second wave of the pandemic. And I'm thinking back to the first wave. When the first wave hit, you were at CJOC, probably at the center of really important debates about how to adapt to COVID, how to adapt military operations to COVID. So what did you learn from that process? What did that look like for the personnel in the spring? Actually, you know, it, it was a zoo. Uh, it was a very crazy complex situation given the fluidity and the rapidity of all the changes. So in addition to all the changes that were happening in, in Canada and with the government of Canada policies, we also had to deal with OS Nation, with NATO coalition restrictions and, and guidelines. So honestly, we were trying to plan for a certain set of parameters, but the rules kept changing on us. Just as an example, uh, the team that was taking over for Up uh, Proteus, which is Canada's contribution to the the office of the United States Security Coordinator, helping the Palestinian Authority Security Forces. Mm -hmm. Well, they were on their day 12 out of day 14 of their isolation period in Trenton before their deployment. And Israel changed the procedures and mandated that all incoming forces had to quarantine in country upon arrival. So we had to rearrange all the flights. Uh, of course, we had to use our CAF assets because there was no commercial flights available. So we flew the team in and they had to add another 14 days of quarantine. So this, of course, at a ripple effects of delaying the team, do the return home flights, the isolation requirement, because those soldiers coming back from international also had to do a, a 14 days isolation before they could be reunited to their family. So it, it was a bit uh, crazy. The, the same thing happened. You might have seen it on the news to more than 100 of um, our EFP soldiers. I, it was 10 o'clock in the morning. I got a phone call reporting that the entire flight that had just taken off might have been in contact with a commissioner in Trenton who had just been confirmed COVID positive. Like the flight was airborne in the middle of the Atlantic, touching down in Latvia two hours later. So we had to make a decision. So the aircraft landed in UK, everyone stayed on board. They refueled and they turned around, they came back to Trenton, where again, all the soldiers had to restart their isolation period for another 14 days. So that was a lot of extra logistical work for 
CJOC as the operational headquarters, especially that we were also running at approximately 40% capacity due to our own COVID restriction in the building. Uh, one thing, though, that I really want to say is I'm, I'm super proud of the CAF, and I'm proud to report that COVID did not stop our operation. Like, we quickly ensured that our troops had access to adequate personal protective equipment, masks, gloves, and all that stuff. Uh, we adjusted our procedures, again, the rules about masks, distancing, the cleaning and the life and and life really continued. Our soldiers are super resilient and they're still out there in operation doing their job every day very interesting. And, and of course, from the example you provided in, in Latvia, which I suppose was the shortest deployment ever, having to return, uh, not even having reached your destination, but also across operations, I imagine the types of military tasks that were routine for, for soldiers during their deployment may have shifted. So I'm wondering when we compare, I don't know, the uh, EFP deployment in, in Latvia to maybe the NATO mission in Iraq, did the nature of military tasks change on the ground or was it just business as usual but with PPE and extra health guidelines put into place? Well, it, it honestly depended on each of the mission. Like I know that for the battle group in Latvia, it was pretty much the same routine, but with with different procedures because their role did not change that much. They were still on the ground. All the other nations were there. They were still training. They were still being a deterrent uh, force. For the NATO mission in Iraq and some of the forces on up impact, that, that was different because honestly, our allies, which we were doing training with, while they were busy responding to COVID and they were not available to do training. So that part was put a bit on hold while the, the, the you know, the, the really intense COVID period was happening. We could not be doing any training. So we flew some of those forces back home. And as soon as our allies, such as Jordan and Lebanon, were ready to restart, then we sent our CAF people back and they resumed operation. Okay, thank you for, for clarifying that. General Bourron, let's fast forward to the present. And you are currently the, the Women, Peace and Security Champion for the CAF. And this has also been your area of focus as a Queen's visiting defense fellow. Can you tell us a bit more about this role, what it means to be the women peace and security champion for the CAF? Well, in my, in my current role as defense champion for the WPS agenda, my interest is focused first and foremost on making the CAF stronger and more effective in military operations. My role as a champion is very wide. I provide leadership advice and I support CAF effort in uh, institutionalizing diversity as an operational capability. And I promote diversity and inclusion as a core institutional values. So from a CAF D&D perspective, the WPS agenda is very broad. It's complex and interrelated. It includes diversity and inclusion, recruitment and retention, training and professional military education, the integration of a gender perspective in domestic and expeditionary operation, research, and finally, cooperation amongst uh, various departments and organizations such as allies, civil society, and NGOs. What I really want to accomplish, well, I want to accomplish so much. But honestly, what I want to do is I want to focus on cultural change. I show Canadian society that the CAF is indeed an employer of choice for women and, and men and minorities, of course. But sadly, right now, statistics are telling us that the majority of women do not see themselves in the CAF. And we need to change that. 
like I am, you've met me, I'm five foot three, 125 pounds. I think I have a very normal IQ. I'm married with two balanced young adults. I mean, I had a great career as a pilot. I had some awesome command opportunities, deployed throughout the world, saw the world. And every day, well, almost every day, I love coming to work. So if I was able to do this, anyone can. So I want to be that example. I want to change that perception that women can't or are not welcome because they are. And there might be some some barriers, but that we don't necessarily see as well. And we'll get to that a little bit later, maybe when we talk about the LC initiative. But I want to relate the women, peace and security champion role that you have maybe to its origin, because even though 2020 has not been a great year and there seems to be a pretty firm global consensus on that front, it's still the 20th anniversary of resolution 1325. So maybe that's something to to celebrate a resolution that was adopted by the UN security council to recognize the unique impact of armed conflict on women and girls. And you mentioned it too, to increase the participation of women and to incorporate a gender perspective in all UN operations and programs. And of course, I'm not doing the resolution justice here, or the WPS agenda justice here, because there's several other resolutions which were adopted after the year 2000 under the banner of the, the WPS agenda. So let me transition and ask you to reflect back on the last 20 years and maybe comment on how you think that the whole women, peace and security agenda has changed the Canadian Armed Forces. Well, I think it's great that we're celebrating 20 years. It seems so long ago, but uh, I think we did a lot and there's still a lot to be uh, done. So from a Canadian perspective, UNSCR 1325 kickstart many, many initiatives. Like uh, Canada's National Action Plan was issued in 2010 and reissued again in 2017, establishing clear goals for Canada. Uh, It also dictated that all policies and programming were going to use gender-based analysis plus, so the GBA plus, to assess how a diverse group of uh, women, men, and gender diverse people may experience policies, programs, and initiatives differently. A big one, again, was in 2016, our CDS General Vance issued directives on the institutional and the operational integration of uh, 1325 into CAF and our own operation. This has prompted a complete review of our training and education programs. It's has changed how we, uh, how we plan and execute operation. Like it's being taught at Staff College and at the Army Staff College where there's now gender annexes and there's steps to ensure that the human security aspect is looked at. We also created the gender advisor role, uh, a key advisor to the commander who is responsible in that team to really bring the human security perspective and also do a lot of the liaison with the civil organization and the civil society because, again, understanding what is going on on the ground is often those NGOs and civil society that are very well connected. So that that relationship needs to be developed and uh, and it's like a symbiotic relationship. Honestly, we need to better understand the, the needs on the ground so that we can do it. So that GenAd is that connection to the uh, NGOs. So we've done a lot. There's much more to be done. I mean, we, we need to look at increasing uh, the, the number of women in the military. That's probably the key one that we need to keep working on. It. But right now, I would say that, you know, the last 20 years, uh, we've set a very, very solid foundation. And now we just have to continue to build on it. 
And you've also been involved with the LC initiative, and I'll let you explain to our listeners exactly what that is. But the real push is to increase the presence of women across UN operations. And you referred to earlier the importance of increasing the number of women in the King Armed Forces. And this specific initiative is about increasing the number of women across operations, so across UN member states. Can you tell us a bit about the LC initiative, but also tell us about maybe the operational consequences of increasing the number of women across peacekeeping operations? You know, as we just said, uh, 1325 released in October 2000, and one of the pillar of that UNSCR 1325 was the importance of the presence of uniform women on operation, both military and uh, police. But sadly, changes have been extremely slow. Uh, as an example, as the end of uh, 2017, only 4.4% of women were deployed with military and police contingents. On top of that, like 29 troop contributing uh, nation did not have women in their forces at all. So the LC initiative was launched in 2017 at the Vancouver Ministerial. Uh, and it's an exceptional program. I mean, it's many countries that are participating in, is, is being led by GAC, Global Affairs, but it has many other players, UN, uh, other uh, agencies. And true financial in incentive, uh, those troop contribution nations are encouraged to deploy gender strong units on UN peace operation. But it's more than a financial support. It also looks at the full spectrum of women meaningful participation in UN peace ops through research on receptive environment, selection process, uh, operational effectiveness, uh, just to name a few. Combined with the UN new uniform parity strategy guideline that was issued in 2019, we are already seeing a difference. Like between 17 and 20, women representation as military staff officer increased from 7.3% to 17.1%. So it, it's it's a huge increase. Uh, same thing for individual police officers. They went from 18% to uh, almost 29. And overall, uh, again, military and police contingents are up to 6.5. So 6.5, you might say, uh, that's not a lot, but, you know, up from 4.4, uh, as I said earlier. So it's 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 good progress and, and, and we're going to get there. So we know that the presence of women in operation achieves a better integration with the society that we are here to help. Like women are good soldiers. They're as good as their, the, the men soldiers. But on top of that, women also have the capacity to reach more of the population than their male counterpart. I mean, we clearly saw that in Iraq and Afghanistan. From So from a security point of view, having women present on the ground and through the peace process uh, greatly increases our chance of success. And honestly, that's what the military is looking at, success on, on, their, on their operation. So the, it seems like the UN has been quite successful at increasing the number of women across operations. And there's different ways or different strategies that have contributed to that outcome. And, and certainly Elsie might be credited with some of those results. Do you have anything to add in terms of the Canadian Armed Forces situation? Could similar types of incentives be applied? Do we need to look more in terms of barriers for the recruitment, uh, but also the deployment of, of women on operations? Are there any lessons to be learned from what has been going on in the UN context for Canada? Well, it's funny that you mentioned that because CAF, uh, we just let a contract to do exactly that. So there's an independent company that's going to be 
going in and uh, doing a survey on our members, looking at the barriers that are left with the women and men serving in the Canadian Armed Forces. Like right now, we have about 13% of our women that are serving on operation, uh, but we need to understand why that number is not uh, higher. So in the next uh, few months, a survey will be done. We're looking at um, about 1,800 survey to be conducted on women and men uh, who have deployed or who have not deployed, because it's important to understand why they have not deployed. And hopefully they'll be identifying the barriers that are left in the Canadian Armed Forces. We expect the report to be in in September of 21. And from there, we will look at those barriers and we will have programs to eliminate those barriers. And we're really exciting because that's one way that we can, again, do better because although we are doing very well in the Canadian Armed Forces, there's always a place for improvement. Well, I will be tracking that that report uh, closely. I look forward to seeing what the what the results are, and of course, very interesting research being conducted in other countries uh, through the prism of the LC project. Again, uh, let me put my professor hat on now and and ask you how all of this, everything that you've been involved with, including your role as champion for women, peace, and security, has influenced your your research plans for this year at Queens. I've been the champion since 2017, but life was so busy in operation that I did not have a lot of time or effort to dedicate. So so this year for me is like a, a bonus. So um, my plan is really to use this year to really dig in and all the interconnected pieces of the WPS agenda, focusing on gender integration and inclusion, because we know the difference uh, between gender integration and inclusion. And slowly we're seeing that maybe the last 20 years the CAF was looking at integration, but we're going much closer into inclusion now. So that is an important piece. So my first paper will probably be, I'm still drafting it, my ideas and everything, will be on the CAF employment equity target of 25.1%. So where we are right now, where we need to be and how to get there, but focusing more on the recruiting aspect and hopefully some uh, good recommendation as how we go forward to keep on uh, doing a better job. Another project would be that I'm thinking is to assemble a best practice guide on gender integration slash inclusion into a military forces. Looking at all the different facade required, like from legislation, human resource policies, recruitment, retention, the training, education, equipment, health, harassment, sexual violence, family support programs, infrastructure, like all... All these specific elements require steps to make sure that we have a successful integration. So I would like to uh, take all these concepts together and and come up with kind of a, a, a best practice guide on how any country that could decide tomorrow to uh, open for women how they could do it from scratch and learning from the um, the experience of all the other countries that went ahead of them. That's wonderful. It might even take you more than one year. Who knows? And you'll have to stay with us. No, I'm kidding. But <laughs> after one year, you'll be eager to go back to your, your regular uh, job. But I think that the, the results of your work will be really interesting. And I, and I hope that at the very least, you'll agree to come back on Battle Rhythm to share some of your results and insights. I would love to. 
Thank you so much for, for this first interview on Battle Rhythm. It's uh, always a pleasure to talk to you. I feel really privileged that uh, we get to interact with you this year at Queen's University. Obviously, I wish that we could see more of each other uh, and, and interact with the students as we normally would and host our events as we normally would, but this is not the case. So thank you for your involvement and your patience and your intellectual creativity as you've uh, taken on this, this role as a fellow. Thank you very much. With this Remembrance Day, I have a couple of suggestions uh, tied into the passing of Sean Connery. He was in two of those big movies uh, that star lots of stars about World War II. He was in The Longest Day and he was in A Bridge Too Far. And he played a bigger role in the second one than in the first. But I think they're both two sort of the classic World War II movies showing uh, major operations with major losses and the scale of things. And so I, I recommend for your Remembrance Day viewing uh, two of these Sean Connery movies. For your reading, I've got something completely different, which is I've become a Nigella Lawson fan, and uh, At My Table, I think, is the name of her cookbook that's sitting on my shelf downstairs. It's become very, very reliable uh, for quick, simple recipes that don't require too many fancy ingredients or, or too many uh, shopping expeditions, uh, and they're pretty straightforward, and they're very tasty. So that's my R&R for this week. Thank you. Have a good week. We'd like to hear your questions and your comments. And so please send them to us at Twitter address at CDSNRCDS or email them to cdsn.rcds at outlook.com. Thank you.